HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for and about the Young Farming Revolution, which is still taking place, even though it's cold and muddy. And today I'm very happy to talk to Marie, who is coming from the other side of the continent from where I am, in coastal, the coastal plains of California. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Well, I just think we should probably start with an explanation of the landscape in which you find yourself um, and a little bit of the history of that landscape. Um, Well, I've currently been grazing in West Sonoma County. Um, It's a grassland. Uh, It's a coastal grassland, and it's um, sort of surrounded by pockets of forest. Uh, so it's a really unique kind of landscape that I've found myself working in. Will you tell us about your land access story and what you're grazing on the land? Um, yeah, so I have a group of uh, Wasant breed sheep, um, spelled out that's O-U-E-S-S-A-N-T. Um, they're a breed that originates from an island just off the coast of France in the English Channel um, called Wissant, um, which also means Western in French or Westernmost. Um, and so it's intriguing to me that I've ended up with them on kind of one of the Westernmost areas of the North American con- continent. Um, for the last couple of years, we've been grazing a property right along the coastline in Bodega Bay. Um, so it's really salty there, and the weather's really mild. Um, but it's it's actually the same 
climate classification as um, as that island off the coast of France. Um, so it's it's a very similar climate to sort of genetically what they're predisposed to. Um, all of my sheep were either born in California or in Massachusetts. Um, a woman named Karen is the person who started breeding them um, with her partner, Ray, um, in Massachusetts. But um, they work really well on the California coastline. They're really hardy, and um, they're really well-suited for the sort of diverse forage that's out there. Um, a lot of sheep are just grazers, so they'll only eat grass, really. Uh, but uh, these sheep, they're a primitive breed. They're a heritage breed um, that have really adapted well to uh, the sort of landscape that's both grasses and brushes and just all kinds of different things. So uh, they do a really good job on the kind of mixed forage uh, that's out along the coastline. We have grass, we have brush, we have trees, um, and they actually do a really good job with maintaining the the coastal grasslands, which have been at risk of being kind of overtaken by just brushy material um, because there just hasn't been enough grazing impact in the last couple of decades. So um, we hung out because... We were both in that movie called The Evolution of Organic, and I don't know if we made it into the final cut, but I probably think a little snippet of us did. And you were talking about your grazing business and your grazing lifestyle and your grazing livelihood and how it relates to the mission of your life and the mission of the larger fiber movement in California. And I wondered if you could kind of dive into that mission uh, a little bit on the radio show right now. Oh, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I hesitate to say that what I do is relatively unique, but as as far as I can tell, it's relatively unique. Um, and as far as I can tell, it's because uh, there's not really, like, an established market for what I'm doing. <laughs> and it, I think to a lot of ranchers on the outset, just, kind of does not really make any sense at all economically. Um, the sheep that I raise are a really small breed. They're known for being the tiniest known sheep in the world. Um, so there's not a lot of meat on them for meat sales. Uh, and their wool is, I mean, it's really, it's really, really good quality wool for people who know what to do with it. But when you're talking about the sort of like commercial market, um, you know that market just wants a sort of a uniform, all white, all even, soft staple um, that can then be processed, you know, like mass produce shirts or something that would then all be, you know, like dyed the same color and it would all come out the same way. Uh, the fiber that comes from my animals is they're they're mainly black sheep. Um, they come in a couple of different colors, some kind of like a a light kind of caramel color and some a sort of cream color. Um, and there's a lot of variations. Um, there's some really interesting articles that have been written by a woman named Diane Falk 
uh, who she writes a blog about Wasant sheep, also the spinning shepherd. Um, and she's gone into a lot of detail about the different genetic variations that can create the kind of really unique color combinations in this breed. However, when it comes to selling wool on, like, the commercial market, it's exactly the opposite of what they want. <laughs> There's a lot of variation. No fleece is the same. The colors are usually kind of heathered or they're, they're dark colors that aren't good for over-dyeing. Um, so in your sort of traditional sheep ranching sense, this breed is, like, not the thing that you want. Um, however, what I, what I looked at when I was establishing my sort of my business and, uh, as you mentioned at my lifestyle, what I was basing it on was the specific environment that I had found myself in. I was in West Sonoma. Um, I was looking at the landscape and the way that it worked with what I was describing before, the grasses and then the microclimates with forest and brush and the way that the grasslands were needing to be managed. Um, and I was also looking at the sort of like the, the current agricultural system and an economic setup. And, you know, in Sonoma, there's a lot of vineyards and there's a lot of orchards, and all of those are planted on grassland. Uh, and, and those are actually, when utilized with grazing animals, those are systems that we started calling silvopasture. So I was kind of looking at all that, and I was like, well, what is an animal that that would make sense for adapting to all those different landscapes and be useful? And um, this breed, I feel like, is really good both for the sort of rangeland management work, um, largely because of their heritage breed and being so hardy and being able to eat all those different kinds of things out there. Uh, but also they work really well in the setting of orchards and vineyards and, and cover crop and places like that because they're really small and easy to transport. Uh, they have really quite charming personalities, so they're not sort of, they don't act like sort of scared, dumb sheep, which sometimes sheep do when they're in situations where they don't, where they're kind of scared or they don't know what's going on. Um, so that's really good for vineyards that are interested in using them kind of in like a biodynamic setting or what have you, uh, where maybe like they also have visitors that are coming that want to see them. Um, they're French, and I felt that anyone who had a vineyard in Sonoma liked anything that was French, so I thought that was a good match. Um, and, you know, like they have this interest in being this heritage breed that needs to be stewarded. They're really sort of unique and in a way exotic, um, yet, like I was saying, they really well, fit in with the climate here. Well, about being small? Like, because they're small, they don't climb up and eat all the growing tips of the vineyard grapes? I am not, I'm not totally sold on that idea. I mean, I would love to promote it just because it's like another reason to use my breed of sheep, but the whole idea of using short sheep in vineyards, I think, um, you know, it always depends on circumstances, but I think you can use almost any breed of sheep in vineyards. It just depends on the timing of when you put the sheep in and when you take them out. Um, you really, no matter the height of the sheep, you don't want them in the vineyard 
when the grapes are on the vine. So as soon as bud break happens in the spring, uh, if you've been grazing over the winter, which is kind of an ideal time to, to graze the grass down, then um, it, just as soon as bud break happens, you want to take all the animals out of there. Um, there are some people who are experimenting with different ways of doing um, trellising with the with the grapes, but I, I think I think the idea of it just being them being short, um, I think it's a little bit of a myth, actually. Okay, so let's move on to your business model and the fiber shed community and how those work together. Yeah, so these these sheep are uh, part of the group, the Fiber Shed, which is a nonprofit in the area. Um, but they're also part of the concept of a local fiber shed, um, in that um, they they really work within the the whole system. Um, I do sell fleeces to people who are are further away, but for the most part, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty um, local economy with what's going on. So the sheep are raised in the area, and, um, you know, they're, they're shorn and their wool is processed, and uh, it's largely sold all within the local area. Um, so it's really um, they, have a, they have a really strong connection with the place, and I hope that as as they go along more and more, the, the Wasant breed becomes more sort of known within um, the Northern California area. So will you talk about what Fibershed is and how your business works? Um, yeah, so, so Fibershed as a nonprofit is an organization that really um, does a lot of work in terms of supporting and advocating for the local fiber system overall, and that often turns into kind of making connections between the different communities, um, sort of bridging the gap between the the rural with the, the farmers and the ranchers, and then the more urban with designers and consumers. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of producers who are out on the landscape and they're raising fiber, um, many different kinds of fiber, not just sheep's wool, but also like alpaca, llama, um, mohair, um, and, and plant fibers like cotton, etc. Um, and then we have a lot of members who are, are artisans or designers, people who are making products from them and getting them out into the hands of the public. And so where does your wool go? Does it go to the Bodega Comforter Company, and does it go to get spun in Mendocino mostly? And is your revenue coming from selling the wool mostly, or is it mostly from grazing services? Uh, yeah, it's two-part. It's both the grazing service and the wool. Um and at some point right now, I'm really growing the flock, so I, I really I haven't been able to make it worthwhile to even investigate into what it would be like to be involved with meat production. Um, 
at some point I might get there, but right now it's just the grazing services and the wool. And um, the wool I mainly sell through like a sort of a CSA model. I, I call it a sheep sponsorship, and people can sign up either for a year sponsorship or a lifetime sponsorship. And the lifetime is the lifetime of the sheep, um, which is typically like 8 to 10 years. Uh, so that one's a really good deal because you get a lot of fleece for quite a while. Um, but I guess it's also quite a commitment <laughs> of spinning the same fleece every year. Um, but it's it's a, it's kind of, I think the idea with that is more that I'm involving the community into the flock rather than like just taking a product off of the sheep and selling it. And then it becomes sort of a little bit more vague, like a little bit sort of faceless. Um, And so the idea behind the sheep sponsorship is that not only is it sort of working like a CSA, like I know ahead of time that I have this much fiber that is going to get sold and, and, you know, like that covers a lot of my costs with, you know, if I need to buy supplements like salt or, or vet attention or dog food for the guard dog, um, those kind of costs. Um, But the sponsorship also kind of involves the people in the flock in, like, the story of what's happening in the lives of the individual sheep that they are sponsoring. Um, People can do things like give the sheep a name. They can come and visit. Um, And it's it's kind of including the community more in in the work that we're doing and and in the story that's being created uh, from the work that we're that we're doing. So I have some people who have been sponsors um, since 2013 when we got started, and the flock is like, or the flock and the business have have changed a lot since then, and and the sheep themselves have changed a lot since then too. I have one person who has been sponsoring the same sheep since 2013 and she is really into it because she said that she can see the variations that happen at every shearing and it's really interesting to her she can kind of see what's happening with the sheep over time whoa so it's kind of like fetishism to use Karl Marx language it's like decommodity decommodifying fetishism (laughs) Um, Okay, and so let's talk a little bit nuts and bolts around how does this fit into your life or livelihood and, you know, what kind of percentage of your life and livelihood um, is this block and what are your goals for how that might evolve um, and your life as a shepherd? Wow, that's such a great question. Think especially, <laughs> um, think I don't know if that's like other, I mean I'm 33. I'm about to be 34, uh, so I don't know if that is really sort of indicative of me being a sort of a young agrarian. Um, but that's that's really a great question, and it's the one that I've sort of been grappling with ever since I started doing this project. Um, I definitely did not expect to start raising sheep when I did. I thought I was going to be, you know, like years until I would ever start having my own sheep. Um, 
the the opportunity just kind of came at me, and I kind of had to run with it at the time. And ever since then, it's been a little bit of a a sort of a juggling feat. Um, Sometimes it's just sort of shooting from the hip or, um, you know, just kind of like dealing with change that that comes up really fast and kind of shifting my entire um, business model as it does. Um, When I first started, I had this concept that... um, that the flock would would always be moving, that they would always be working on contract, and I would just move them from one job to the next, and I myself would also be mobile, and um, I was very used to living a sort of, like, nomadic lifestyle and was kind of jumping around from one place to the other um, and enjoying that. And uh, kind of what went along with that was the idea that that was good for the, the flock's health, um, in that they were always moving different landscapes. They never had to come up with the problem of, like, oh, no, like, they've already grazed this area, like, three years in a row. Like, now we have, you know, parasite problems. What do we do? You know, like, that 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 was something that would just not come up in that sort of model. Um, and then a couple of years later, I ended up breeding, which I also was not expecting to do, but um, then that opportunity to get a ram and do that came up. Um, And so then I found myself um, with really pregnant sheep that needed somewhere to lamb. And so uh, I went to this nearby ranch to do lambing. And um, from that point on, I, I basically started shifting to a different model, which was the idea that there would be a sort of a, a home base for the ewe flock, for the breeders, uh, and that they they wouldn't really get sort of sort of rented out on contract, but they would just be a sort of a stable. They would have their sort of stable home base, the place where they always grazed, and and I would use that as an opportunity to do a sort of a, a long term um, grazing management plan for that property so that that I could make up a plan of what it would look like to have a flock of sheep on the same property and and make it work um, over the course of, like, several years as opposed to kind of, like, coming in, doing a job, and then moving on. Um, And that then with the ewe flock at their home base, then it would be um, the lambs, what would ordinarily be sort of like the market lambs or the feeder lambs, they would then be the ones that would go out on contract. Um, And then, you know, if I ever ran out of sort of grazing job opportunities for them, that would be when I would either return them back to the home base or, you know, like look into um, meat sales or things like that. Um, But we've now reached a point where I've sort of tried out both of those scenarios, and um, now this summer, I'm actually looking to move a little bit further north of where I am currently in Sonoma, Um, so the home base for the flock is going to move to Mendocino, Um, and I think from there, we're going to look into uh, actually, uh, I think, finding a sort of a home base for the ewe flock there and then um, sending lambs out in different ways on different contracts 
Um, some still in Sonoma, um, but it would have to be different than what I've been doing now. Um, so I get kind of vague on this point because I can tell you really easily like what we have done in the past and, and how it did work, and I can tell you what's currently happening. But um, the future is a little like sort of in envisioning process. A lot of it is just going to, I think, be based on, on the sort of like the landscape and, and the economic and social landscape that I find myself in once once we've moved there. Well, I was just up there in baby lamb time and Alice Erskine and Sophie um, what's her name? Um, Sophie I forgot her last name from Apple Farm. They were both getting lambs and, and you know, and I was like, looks like there's a lot of land, upland, you know, grazableness. And they were like, plenty of land, plenty of land, not much fencing. So that was in the Anderson Valley. And I, I wonder about the whole, like, you know, how many shepherdesses is it going to take to even, you know, get the, you know, get that first set of opportunities? And how much more opportunity is there than even when you get into the wine grape territory? It feels kind of like the Wild West in in so far as so much of those uplands are, um, you know, only somewhat fenced and not currently being utilized. And I just came from New Zealand. I was I was giving a talk in New Zealand, and I got to travel around, and I just couldn't believe how every little snippet of land was fenced and cared for, and you know, had animals on it, and um, yeah. You know, now I'm driving in Cooperstown, New York, and it's just astounding how much underutilized land we have in the United States. It's actually tragic. And there's a really great article from um, a man who wrote a book called The Shepherd's Life, um, who's a shepherd, obviously, of sheep in the Lakes District of England. And he was saying, you know, how his shock and horror in traveling around Kentucky during his book tour to see all the abandoned farms and falling down barns and falling down fences and broken down small towns um, and the testimony of our failed agricultural economy um, by many measures, the failure in many, on many measures of our agricultural economy in this country. So anyway, all of these things are really striking me um, now and especially as, you know, you guys are trying to find the chinks of opportunity in a landscape that's being um, dominated by recreational and wine users for um, putting sentience and furry creatures back on the land. Yeah, I think that's a lot of where we've kind of been coming from is like the sort of the the sort of standard ranching opportunities, or at least what they're there once was they're not they didn't really feel very available to me um in the way that they they might still be in New Zealand I traveled there a little bit and it was kind of amazing how like there was no there were no trees that had leaves that were like closer than like 4 or 5 feet off the ground like everything was perfectly trimmed and that wasn't like because everybody had personal gardeners they literally were just like there was nowhere that didn't have sheep and the sheep just kept everything really trimmed and neat and open <laughs> um and especially when i got back um there were a lot of areas that just looked really shaggy really really overgrown really shaggy um 
so I do spend a lot of time sort of driving around the area and seeing all kinds of like weeds and overgrown bushes and trees and things and, and thinking to myself like, oh, that's food. <laughs> Something should be eating it. And I think that's kind of what led me to um, those ideas of, of ways that I could have sheep. And certainly, especially like a few years ago, I was definitely not like economically prepared to have my own sheep, um, at least in like any sort of like usual, like you own land sort of way. Um, and that might be, I mean, that's part of the, the sort of potential for Mendocino is that in Sonoma, I'm pretty confident that I can't afford land, but I think that in Mendocino, there are more opportunities, um, and certainly more opportunities for, um, enacting different kinds of models and, and, kind of taking a system that, that is pretty broken and that is is not really functioning the way that we, we need it to and, and saying, like, oh, well, that is an opportunity to do something then. Like, if nobody's doing anything that's really functional, that's an opportunity for me to come in and do something functional. <laughs> not that there's nobody, well, but and you, wouldn't <laughs> you know have what I mean. to own necessarily all the land, but you could own... You know, you could you could own your own little corral or loading area or doctoring pen and your house, and you know, and have a, a long term lease with the with the you mama mama lammy home zone, and then range around on a bunch of different mm-hmm. people's land, um, and be able to grow and shrink your flock. Anyway, it's exciting. It's exciting to watch you guys figuring all these dynamics out and, you know, the whole, all of us are benefiting from the risks that you're taking and the observations that you're making and the sharing that you do of the information that you learn, um, you know, as like action research about how we're going to rejigger this farm economy. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Thank you for having me on your show. Um, well, thank you all for listening. I want to make sure that um, I have a chance to promote everyone buying their copy of the New Farmer's Almanac and checking out our new movies on OurLand.tv. But also, um, Marie, I wanted to let you give any announcements of regional happenings um, in your neck of the woods. Obviously, on the California side of the country, you have the Farmer's Guild and the Farmer's Guild happenings and mixers and trainings and workshops, um, which they just recently merged with CAF, which is California Alliance for Family Farmers. Um, anything else you want to let people know about? Um, yeah, wow, There's there can be quite a lot of things that are going on. I think the thing that, that I would mention is that there is this really, really awesome opportunity for there's this workshop on um, holistic management that's being taught um, primarily by Richard King, uh, but uh, I think also with input from Donica Markagard, who um, she grazes cattle a bit north of me. Um, I think it's called Markagard Family Meats. Um, and, and some other people, um, it's going to be at Piscini's Ranch, um, a bit south of here. Um, and it's it's really, really reasonably priced. I think they got subsidized for it somehow. So it's like um, 
three weekend uh, workshops um, throughout March and April. I can't remember the exact dates, but if you go on Holistic Management International's website, uh, HMI, um, then you would see it. It's $250 for all of it. It's like six full days of workshop um, with Richard King and other people who are just really great at doing the whole, like, holistic management planning thing. Um, so I think if, if people were, were interested in that kind of thing but they've been held off about the price, that's just, like, a really amazing opportunity. Well, now is a great time for making a plan and recognizing that there's a lot of restructuring, some of it voluntary, some of it involuntarily voluntary, some of it that we can plan and some of it we can just respond to the changes that are coming and um, having clarity about your personal holistic goals and the goals of your business and the context of your in the experience practitioners and many of my good friends is super duper helpful in times of change. So doing that like internal work and quiet work and reflective contemplative work to be ready to pounce be ready to take opportunities that align with your goals um, feels pretty specific. So I will leave it there and send you a big hug Murray, and to all your ladies, I um, hope to see you soon Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.